Have you ever been to the Louvre? I bet if you have, you saw the Mona Lisa. When you enter the room where the Mona Lisa is displayed, you can tell instantly where she is because there's this huge crowd of folks gathered, maybe about 10 deep and about 20 feet wide, 20 bodies wide, and they're holding up their selfie sticks and their cameras, so there's no way you can see her. You can't even crane your neck and lean over to see Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece because everyone is in the way. You can kind of go like that. But if you're short like me, good luck. But don't get discouraged. Turn around, look on the opposite wall, and you will see the largest painting in the Louvre. It fills the entire wall, but no one pays attention to it. The massive painting captures the joy of the wedding banquet. Paolo Veronese has painted the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turned water into wine. But this scene really could be several different scenes in the New Testament, for we see the same image in Revelation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It repeats in Luke's gospel and in today's text that we read from Matthew, where a king throws a wedding banquet for his son. The massive painting absolutely overwhelms the viewer. Every inch of canvas, which stretches about 32 feet wide and about 21 feet tall, is filled with a human being in movement, eating and drinking and dancing and laughing and leaning down to pet the dog and rushing in with another barrel of wine. Why would anyone strain to see that boring Mona Lisa when there is this stunning portrayal of God's royal banquet beckoning for our attention? In today's story from the Gospel of Matthew, no one gives much attention to the banquet that God hosts. The first invitations go out engraved with gold leaf, but no one comes. They send out another round of invitations, this time enticing the guest with the menu, filet mignon, imported fig marmalade, a 20-year port to be served in Waterford Crystal, and the guest still refused to RSVP. They make light of the invitation. They blow it off. They lose the invitation under a stack of junk mail. And so a third round of invitations go out. This time, they post the flyers on the light post all over town. They post it on Facebook. They put up a big banner on Ward Parkway that says, y'all come. Anyone can come. The cool kids are welcome. The ordinary folks are welcome. The folks who have made a mess of their lives, y'all come. Well, there are obvious reasons for not wanting to pay attention to this particular gospel story. The king gets angry and wreaks havoc upon those who decline the king's invitation. Those who fail to RSVP are left behind in a city smoldering in ruins after the king's servants set it on fire. And then this king ejects one of the wedding guests who shows up improperly dressed, even though it's clear he had no time to get fitted for his 
tuxedo since his invitation came very last minute. Why would the king, who we sometimes think of as God, banish a guest to weeping and gnashing of teeth and then suggest that many are called and few are chosen? This text is clearly too harsh. It doesn't square at all with what we know about a God of grace. What are we to make of this parable that demands a prompt RSVP and a perfectly dressed guest in order to stay inside of God's good graces? Well, it's a parable. It's a story which is meant to evoke something within us. So if, if it makes you uncomfortable and anxious, it's probably working. I think Matthew intended for us to squirm a little bit when we heard it. Matthew is describing the angst that happens for people during a spiritual revolution. The first spiritual revolution that Matthew is describing is how God's invitation has been extended beyond the confines of the Jewish community and out into the Gentile world. Jesus, a faithful Jewish man, invites both those inside the Jewish temple who already are in relationship with God, and he also invites the outsiders, the pagans, the Gentiles, the sinners, the poor, the uneducated, the women, the foreigners. Jesus invites them all to come to God's amazing and fantastic party. And then Matthew also alludes to a second spiritual revolution that is unfolding, the one that happened in the early years of Christianity, those first hundred years or so after the time of Jesus, when Paul and other missionaries go out and invite people to come into God's relationship from all over the known world, and the church takes off, and many come to the party. But not all who come are willing to change their lives and conform their daily behavior to the shape of Christ. Can you come to the party of Jesus and yet refuse to behave with compassion, refuse to care for the poor, refuse to love your enemy, refuse to work for justice as Kahala just talked about in South Korea? Or will you get bounced from that heavenly banquet. Matthew names the angst and the tension that the early Christians are already experiencing in the first century. For when you are in the middle of a spiritual revolution, it can feel so unsettling, so confusing, and only later looking back does God's handwriting seem apparent. Only later can we look back and go, wow, that was the spirit at work. In the middle of it, it feels icky. We feel worried. But spiritual revolutions change the world. So maybe there's something to be gleaned from this story. For the next major spiritual revolution in Christianity happened a few centuries later when Christianity becomes the official religion under the reign of Constantine. And then another spiritual revolution happens within Christianity around the year 1000, when the Pope of Rome and the Pope of Constantinople excommunicate one another, and this splits the church into two branches, the Eastern Church, 
The Greek and Russian Orthodox Church, as we would know them today, headquartered back then in Constantinople, and the Catholic or the Western Church headquartered at the Vatican in Rome. Another spiritual revolution. And then about 500 years after that, Martin Luther and others lead a protest movement known now as the Protestant Reformation, which is why you and I sit here this morning. And in two weeks, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of that particular spiritual revolution that freed all of us to engage in our lives of faith in a new way. And so around the first century, a spiritual revolution Around the year 300, 400, another spiritual revolution. Around the year 1000, another spiritual revolution. Around the year 1500, another spiritual revolution. Could we be in the midst of another spiritual revolution now? Because if it happens every 500 years or so, we're due. And when a spiritual revolution happens, people begin to think differently and behave differently. But sometimes in the midst of it, it feels more like weeping and gnashing of teeth than it does like a joyful wedding banquet. This summer, I listened to New York Times reporter Markle, Michael Barbero. I love that name, Michael Barbero. He was interviewing a young man named Derek Black. Derek was raised by a leader in the white nationalist movement in the United States. Derek's dad started the largest and first website of the white nationalist movement. Derek's dad had been the grand wizard of the KKK. And when Derek was still a little boy, he said maybe 11 or 12 years old, he too started a website, a kid's website, to espouse the views of his family and friends, views that said things like, the world would be better off if here in this country we were all the same color. Views like race dictates that people end up with a certain intelligence and that the races should stay separated. Derek grew up with this white nationalist ideology Within his soul, he didn't know any different. He had never encountered anyone any different. And he knew that he would inherit his father's philosophy and life work. And then Derek went to college. And three and a half hours away from his home, he met other college students, none of whom knew anything about Derek or his family. He became friends with an Orthodox Jewish man, another student who invited him to Shabbat on Friday night. He met in the cafeteria other students who were out working for justice in the world. He met people in the dorm who were atheist, and one day he was talking to some other students who were saying how unbelievably ridiculous this white nationalist thought was. And he began listening to folks who had a different view from his. And Derek began to change his mind. One day, Derek wrote a paper disavowing all the views that he had grown up with about this white nationalist ideology. And Derek went to his website 
and he posted this view that he now believed in a whole different way. And the phone rang, and it was his dad. And his dad said, Derek, your website's been hacked. And Derek said, no, it hasn't. That's what I believe. And his father said, maybe I never should have had a son. Later, his dad apologized. But for Derek, change was profoundly painful. He wanted to do what he had been taught, which is to protect the world from the dangers that we face. He felt shame about the way he had been thinking in the past, and he wanted to live in a new way and to make a difference positively in the world. The Gospel of Matthew describes this kind of changed behavior as putting on a new garment, wearing new clothing. It's a common image throughout Scripture to describe this human transformation or this process of being converted to the image of Christ as wearing a new outfit. We are called not to just show up to God's party, but to live as new people, to behave in new ways. If you look at the top of your bulletin this morning, you'll see one of these verses from Scripture that talks about conversion to Christ's ways as wearing new clothing. It says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. This passage and others like it summon us to imagine our Christian life as clothed in a new set of behaviors. So in this morning's parable from Matthew, that guest in the end gets ejected because he refuses to live the new life that God invites him to live. Because the Christian life is more than just showing up. It's walking in new ways. It's more than imagining a divine Jesus. It's walking in the divine and compassionate pathway of that Jesus. Church leader and author Brian McLaren in his recent book, The Great Spiritual Migration, suggests that you and I are now living in the midst of a spiritual revolution. And he says that part of that revolution is to shift from just believing the right things to living the right way. It's about more than belief. It's about practice. And I don't know if you read it, but commentator David Brooks in a recent article in the New York Times asks, where is the church today? We live in such a complicated world. He reminds us that in our own history, that the church took a leading role in eliminating slavery and creating civil rights and reducing poverty. And he says, where is the church now? He says, can the church mount an offensive assault for opportunity, for opportunity and human dignity? As we face the messy problems that we face today, like immigration and health care and race relations and violence, can we in the church, individually and collectively, be a part of this next spiritual revolution? This summer, I read the book, A Man Called Ove. Perhaps you saw the movie that came out a couple of years ago. The movie actually tells Ove's story a bit differently. 
similar plot line, but different opening and closing. The novel tells us that when Ove's wife died, it's not that Ove died with her, but he stopped living. And then without warning, Ove is downsized by the company where he has spent his entire career, 43 years, faithfully serving that company. In the opening pages of the book, Ove is the classic rigid curmudgeon. But now he's heartbroken and adrift, purposeless, at age 59. <clears throat> and Ove makes plans to end his own life. But just before he tightens the noose around his neck, his doorbell rings. The crazy foreign pregnant lady from next door, Parvana, she's just moved in, she's still got the trailer attached to her car, and she's and her family have just backed their vehicle over his mailbox. He, annoyed, he goes outside, slams their car in reverse, backs it up, and sends them on their way. But all of this ordeal of sorting things out with the crazy new neighbors takes so much time that he decides he'll kill himself tomorrow. But the next day, just as he sets up the garage for his next suicide attempt, Parvana, the crazy foreign lady, shows up again, banging on the garage door. Please, she says, you have to drive me to the hospital. My husband has fallen off the ladder. He's gone to the emergency room in the ambulance, but I don't have a driver's license. I'm new in this country. My daughters are here. We're scared. Can you please drive us to the hospital? Well, with carbon monoxide fumes still filling his car, he loads up the crazy neighbor lady and her two daughters, and they drive to the hospital. One thing happens, another thing happens, and all of a sudden there's this teenager that needs help fixing his bike, and then there's another teenager who needs a place to spend the night because his father threw him out of the house, and then there's that elderly neighbor, his good friend down the street, who's fighting with the county authorities about being uh, put into a government care center, and eventually Ove gets so caught up in helping all of his neighbors that he has to go to his wife's grave and explain to her why he has been unable as of yet to join her. Just a little longer, he explains to his wife. He explains just a little longer to this woman who is the only person on the planet who he believes has ever really understood him. Just a little longer. But just before the novel ends, the crazy neighbor lady, Pravana, invites Ove to a party. It's the birthday party for her eight-year-old daughter and Ove RSVPs. Not only that, he comes with a gift. He has learned that the little neighbor girl desperately wants an iPad, but that her parents cannot afford it. Now, Ove has never opened a computer, has no idea how they work, but he makes his way to the Apple store and purchases for her the best iPad on the market. And when you see in the final scene of the book, Ove at this party, for the eight-year-old girl's birthday, you can see that he looks like a new man. No longer does he wear bitterness. He wears a smile. 
he refuses a bite of cake because he has already feasted on the joy that comes with serving another neighbor. The invitation remains open. All are invited. Will we keep passively looking over there at that Mona Lisa, that beautiful lady? Or will we too jump right in to God's party?